The only way to be happy is for everyone to be made equal. So, we must burn the books, Montag. Right now, ye might well. Show us your crooked jaw. But it cannot stay in the Shire. No. No, it can't. What must I do? She doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time. What? I'm explaining to you because you look nervous. Peace. I hate the word. As I hate hell, all Montagues and thee. And therein, as the bard would tell us, lies the rub. When I was 14 years old, I was a dumb kid, and I made a lot of dumb decisions and ended up in a lot of embarrassing situations. And this one is the worst of all of them. Um, this is probably my number two story in all the stories that I have to share that have happened in my life. This one's number two. And that's because I've never heard anybody share an experience that was more embarrassing than what happened to me. I've heard some that come close. Um, I've just never actually met somebody that's done something this stupid. So I was 14 and I was on a camping trip with uh, a, a bunch of buddies of mine, but more specifically with my neighbor, Kirk. And uh, we were good friends and had a really good time. We were in Jackson Hole, we were on a rafting trip. And um, I don't know if you know this about 14 year old boys, but, but they play stupid games. And we had this thing that we, that we called starting a new ball game. And what that meant was that if, if you were to say punch your buddy in the shoulder and then he hit you back, you weren't allowed to hit him again because he was just getting payback, right? That, that brought the scales to even, that was justice, right? But if you hit him, he hits you back and then I hit him again, well, that's starting a whole new ball game where they now have the right to hit me again because I started something. So this is all about who started a tit for tat, right? Well, I can't even remember what he did, but I, I think Kirk that day, um, we, were, we were rafting, camping, and I think he gave me a wedgie at some point. And so I was just on the lookout. I was like, oh, you just started a whole new ball game. I'm coming at you. But uh, I, I knew that revenge is a platter best served cold. And so I was looking for an opportunity where he'd least expect me to get back at him. Now, on this rafting trip, they had scheduled a day of fun in Jackson Hole where we'd go into the city and we went to the aquatic center, which is, you know, a huge swimming pool um, with slides and lots of fun stuff to do. And so I'm just watching like a hawk all day long. Uh, we're playing, we're swimming, and I'm like, oh, I could throw, I could shove Kirk into the water at one point, right? He's standing on the edge, but I'm like, well, he's already in his swimsuit. That's not, it's really not that big of a deal. Or we were, we walked up and we were about to go down a slide and I was like, oh, I could throw him down the slide. But again, he was, he was going to go down the slide anyway. And I was like, maybe I just give him a wedgie, you know, and right, bring it back to even so that it's, there's justice. But none of it seemed quite right. So I just, I just held off. And I was just waiting for that perfect opportunity where I could come and just pay him back in a way that he would know that I didn't forget about the wedgie he had given me. I was coming back. The day passes, we get done swimming, it's time to go. We all head to the locker room. And as you know, all good things happen in a locker room. Um, so we're waiting there. We're changing and this is still on my mind. My, my time is running out to do something back to Kirk. And I'm at my locker right here. 
and he's next to me changing, right? And I can kind of see him out of the corner of my eye and I'm changing and I'm changing and I put all, and I get done dressing and I put my clothes on and I turn and my moment presented itself like never before. And I, I had to act quick. I was like, this is my last chance. I got to jump on this. What had happened was I had gotten dr- done dressing first. And so I turned to Kirk and he is there next to me at his locker, but he's bending over and he's totally naked. He's bending down to grab something off the ground as he's changing. And I'm like, oh, son, you done it. Here is the chance. Now I get my payback. So I wound up and I went and I slapped him on the butt just as hard as I could. And I was like, yes, this is it. This is my payback. So I slap him and then a 26 year old man that I've never met jumps up and goes, what are you doing? (laughs) I just slapped a complete stranger on the bare butt in the locker room. Someone I had never met before, never seen before. And my face goes bright red as it should. Like, like I have never felt so sickeningly embarrassed in my life. And I just stood there. I didn't know what to say. Everybody in the locker room, there's probably 10 other of my, in my scout troop all standing in the locker room and they all turn around and they're like, what's going on? And some of them are like, oh my gosh, did Carson just hit that guy on the butt while he's naked? And, 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 and I did the only thing I could think of. And, and I said, I, I'm so sorry. I, I thought you were my friend. And of course, this doesn't exactly clear things up. And he's like, he, I, he could tell that I was absolutely mortified from this. And he just kind of like goes back to changing. Never in the room. There's a few scattered chuckles. People are trying to muffle it. They can't believe what, I'm done, what I've done. And I stand there. And, and in hindsight, I should have ran right? Like fight or flight. I I just froze up. And in hindsight, I'm like, I totally should have just booked it. I should have just ran out of there. But instead I just stood there and I took it. Oh man. Well, a few seconds later, really like almost as if on cue, um, Kirk walks into the locker room and he's fully dressed. How I could be so dumb to not realize that Kirk had left the room and that this wasn't even him, like we were 14 year olds. Like, how did I confuse this 26 year old guy? I don't know. Like I said, it was really dumb. But Kirk walks in and then everybody starts to laugh because the other members of my scout troop all know that he is the one that I thought this naked dude was. <sighs> anyway, they all start laughing and I, he's like, what, what happened? Like he has no idea, but the more he says, the more everybody starts laughing because they're not in on it or he's not in on it. He has no idea what he's just stumbled into. Anyway, the 26 year old man, he, he kind of played it off and he's like, oh, your friend likes that, huh? Kind of joking with me, trying to take the edge off, which was really, really cool of him. But man, for days, I, if you've ever had that embarrassed feeling, For days, I felt that, this pit in the bottom of my stomach, like, oh my gosh, I am never going to live this down. And sure enough, the the other boys in my scout troop, I'm sure they all remember this. I've told this story on a number of occasions, and people just can't believe that, that I slapped another man's butt in the locker room. Fortunately, I got over it eventually. And I soon discovered 
that it was one of my better anecdotes that I could share, you know, like at a party or something's going on and people are like, and, and my friends, like even Kirk would be like, oh, dude, tell them about it. Tell them what happened. Tell them what happened. Because people are just astonished that I could be that dumb. And honestly, there's probably five or six more super embarrassing things that I did around that time. I guess I, guess I would call it my own coming of age time in life. And... But honestly, every time I share it and I and I get people to have a good laugh out of it, it it's sort of a balm. It, it makes me feel a lot better having done something so stupid. And it, this may sound really strange, but all these years later, I'm actually glad it happened. At the time, I wanted to crawl under a rock and die. But now looking back, I'm like, yeah, the, I've grown up and I've learned a thing or two since then. And I'm glad to be able to share that with people and get them to laugh. And, and it really takes the edge off. And in storytelling, that's exactly what comedy does. It takes the edge off of things. I think of comedy as sugar. If, if storytelling is a recipe and, and you're baking and you're making something, comedy is like sweet. It's like dessert. Comedy is the, the sugar that you add something to make it sweet, to make it a, a, the medicine go down a lot easier. Now, in terms of comedy, I have to say that Hollywood, in their big blockbuster movies, have mastered this art of sprinkling in comedy into their narratives. Uh, all the Marvel movies, the Avenger movies, um, Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, Iron Man, Captain America, all of these stories are just littered. Um, Ragnarok. Uh, I had people tell me that Ragnarok was one of the funniest movies they've seen. And it's an action film, right? But they sprinkle it with comedy because it takes the edge off. And it's really nice to give the viewer this like roller coaster experience. Comedy is a really powerful tool for that, right? Because you have drama, you have action, you have tension, right? The, uh, you'll, you'll find me talking a lot about conflict in story and how conflict reveals character. But comedy helps take our energy the other direction so that as we're experiencing it, sometimes in the lowest of lows in a story, a little bit of comedy can just take the edge off enough and it makes it that much more enjoyable to watch. I'm sure many people can agree with me that the comedy in the Marvel movies is just one of the best things. Here's one of my favorites. <laughs> Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy, well, they run into Thor in, in the last uh, Avengers movies, and, and when he sees Thor, uh, Drax says, it's like a pirate had a baby with an angel. And it's just like this amazing line. And of course, the Guardians of the Galaxy, all of those characters are rather comical in their approach to these big stakes that they that they face uh, over the course of the story it's their comedy that enables them to get through it um here's another really really good one uh so chris pratt shows up his character shows up and he grabs spider-man he's like where is gamora and and iron man turns around and he says i'll do you one better who's gamora right he's emphasizing that he's like i have no idea who you're talking about and then drax who's just like splayed out on the ground having already been hit is like i'll do you one better why is gamora now, I laughed my head off when I saw that in the theater, and I'm sure most of you laughed your head off too because it's so unexpected. But right, do you see how that kind of adds this like levity to a moment that can be really, really nice where we're going on this roller coaster of emotions and the Marvel movies are dang good. And no, Drax isn't the only funny one. Thor says a lot of funny things. Iron Man says a lot of things, right? Tony Stark, um, he's he's witty and, and that comes out uh, a lot of times through the things he says that, that end up being really, really funny. Now, there's something I have to say about comedy, first and foremost, and that is that it is very difficult. 
right? Um, there's this scene uh, with Bill Murray in Groundhog's Day where he is driving with, with uh, Punxsutawney Phil um, on the steering wheel. And I, and I read a thing that said he got bit like three times by that uh, groundhog in that scene. Um, comedy can be really, really difficult, but writing comedy is even more difficult. In fact, uh, my heart just goes out to the Jim Carrey's, the Adam Sandler's, the, the Andy Samberg's of the world because it can be really difficult. I, I, I think of Bill Murray uh, comes to mind because I read in an interview and I think it's on Groundhog's Day, but might have been one of his other films. He shares a story about how uh, on a certain film, the director was trying to get such good comedy out of him, right? So they'd run almost every scene like 20 times. And after every take, the director would be like, okay, that was great, Bill. Do it again, but try something different. And so Bill Murray just felt like he was constantly just pulling crap out of left field and trying new things. And it was just exhausting having to be like on point, like, okay, now be funny. Now be funny again, but do it different. And, and you got to imagine that one of the one of the hard things about being funny on set or in front of a camera, even here, I'm experiencing this now, right? I've shared two jokes now where I hope you watching at home, I hope you laughed, but I have no idea if you did, right? When I read that line from Drax about why is Gamora, right? Like when it happened in the theater, everybody laughed. I have no idea if you laughed when I said that just now. So imagine being a comedian on set and having to act funny, but everybody around you is just being purely silent. It is very, very difficult to, to know if you're being funny or not because humor is different for everybody. There are certain types of humor that just don't work for some people. Me, I cannot stand the National Lampoon's, like National Lampoon Christmas Vacation. I've never made it through the whole thing because I just can't stand it. I cannot stand a story where the plot is bad stuff happens to this guy. I'm like, ah, it just kills me. I don't think it's funny at all. But I know people that laugh their heads off at those kinds of movies. And I know the, the kinds of stories that get me laughing are not necessarily the same things that get you laughing. So, so I think comedy is very, very difficult. And we're going to talk about how it works and get into the mechanics of it. But I just wanted to say first and foremost that, that I tip my hat to anybody who's trying to do comedy because... Um, comedy is very difficult, but it's often not seen, it's often not rewarded critically, right? Like the comedies aren't the ones winning the, the Oscar or, um, you know, they're not all, always going to be the, the best-selling novels, right? If you're trying to write something funny, um, comedy is great, but it doesn't always appeal to everybody. And it's hard to make a comedy, uh, a story that's built on comedy, that that's a genre. It's hard to make that where it has mass appeal. But like I said, you don't necessarily have to be writing a comedy to use some of these tools in your writing to create moments of levity. And if you do it at the right time, it creates a nice sort of that roller coaster dynamic that I keep referencing um, that, that you've all experienced it, right? You're in an action movie and finally there's a moment where somebody says something funny and you laugh. And it's like this release after so much tension. Um, on top of that, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about these guys. Um, I've got here in my hand uh, The Martian by Andy Weir and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Those, I think, are two, two of some of my favorite comedy writers. And I know most people wouldn't categorize Andy Weir as a comedy writer, but man, while The Martian is super tense, it is also hilarious. Like, like not, not even just a movie with uh, Matt Damon. I'm like in the book reading, I was laughing out loud really often. And if it's hard to make people laugh 
on camera, like doing it through writing is that much harder. You might get people to smile or, or to, to, you know, be like, have that moment of levity, but actually getting them to laugh out loud through writing, uh, it is an expert skill. And, and as for Douglas Adams, uh, the writer of Hitchhiker's Guide, uh, may he rest in peace. He's the best. If you haven't read Hitchhiker's Guide and you want to laugh and you want to feel just better about life, go read it. There, It's some of the most amazing sci-fi ever. And yes, it is built 100% on just out-of-this-world <laughs> humorous stuff. Um, so yeah, I just want to tip my hat to those guys and share that when I was in grad school, uh, I had a couple buddies in my, in my class that were very much interested in comedy. And their scripts were all comedy scripts, and they were trying to do these things that some of these uh, these actors, you know, like Will Ferrell and Adam Sandler, that, that they've achieved. And they, so this one guy, his name was Chris, um, I was talking to him about what he was doing to enhance his writing, and it was really, really interesting. He uh, started going to stand-up comedy clubs that have open mic night and trying out material. And if you dig in and you look and you look at some of these uh, guys that are famous for their comedy, like Andy Samberg, um, Jim Carrey, uh, I think of Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld, um, Tim Allen, they all got their start in comedy because it's this really amazing thing. Like I said, it is hard to know when you're being funny or not. And it's hard to plan when you're going to be funny and turn it on. So it takes a lot of practice. But the other thing that makes comedy so difficult is because you can't try again. You can't try a joke out twice on the same person, right? You can't like tell someone a joke, they didn't laugh, then you reword it a little and then try it on the same person again, you can't do that. So what my buddy Chris was doing, and I know there's a couple other people in my year at Chapman um, that were doing this as well. They would go do stand-up comedy and they'd try their material out and they'd put a, a tape recorder in the back um, and they'd record everything that their set was. And then they'd go afterward and they'd listen to it and see which jokes got laughs and which didn't. And just so you know, for novice, for new comedians getting up and doing stand-up, the crowds can be absolutely merciless. They, they can be brutal with their feedback, which is great training ground if you're trying to learn how to be funny. And, and so what uh, these buddies of mine would do is they'd go do stand-up and they'd go listen to it and then they'd tweak their jokes and adjust them and then they'd go back another night and they'd have a whole new audience. I'm sure maybe there's a few people that, that are repeats, but for the most part, a whole new audience and they'd try those jokes again and then they'd listen to the set afterward and be like, okay, did that joke land because I tweaked the wording or I changed the punchline? And if you watch a lot of these stand-up comedians, if you go and watch their sets repeatedly, they are all using the exact same verbiage multiple times. They don't just get up there and wing it. They have their jokes set up for how they want them to land on the audience and it's quite impressive. So if you're really interested in comedy, it may be a good idea to get out there and start trying some material in real life and experiencing that and getting that feedback because on the page is probably the hardest way to know if you're being funny or not. Um, I also wanted to share this clip. Uh, it's an interview with Christopher Nolan and Kenneth Branagh after Tenet, and Christopher Nolan says something really interesting in this clip. So, uh, Chris, would you ever do a movie that's a comedy? Oh, they're all they're all comedies. <laughs> uh, I, to be perfectly honest, uh, nothing frightens me more than the concept of doing a doing a comedy. When I see what these these great 
comedic filmmakers are up against in a way. You know, you could you put a couple of jokes in a in a in a serious film, and if they don't land, you you just cut them out, or you know what what have you. you. You watch it with an audience. If you don't get a laugh, you take it out. The idea of of constructing an entire narrative that's totally at the mercy of the audience's you know comedic response to it. Uh, it's an extraordinary thing that they do. It's a real high wire act, and I, I admire it tremendously. I wouldn't ever want to step into that arena. Again, I just I'm, I'm super grateful for all the people out there willing to try their hand at comedy because it's not easy. Let's talk a little bit about the anatomy of a joke because it's quite simple. In fact, um, I think a joke works the exact same way that a story does. Right? There's a three act structure to it almost. Um, you have your hook, and then you have your setup. And then you have your punchline. And here's the really interesting thing. As I've talked in other podcasts and other episodes about uh, the climax of a film, a punchline to a story works almost the exact same way. The reason something is funny to us is, is because it's almost like uh, our, our mind does double duty. What I mean by that is the punchline of a joke will surprise you. But almost in the same instant, you suddenly realize that it was intended a different way, and that that tickles your funny bone. That makes it funny, right? And that's why that's why uh, puns and uh, innuendos they make people laugh because y- you understand it one way, and then it surprises you and means a totally different thing. And if you do it quick enough, and it, it's almost like our mind racing to catch up, it forces us to laugh. Now let's do example of this, okay? Let's play, let's do a knock-knock joke, and you can kind of see how this goes. Knock-knock. A little old lady. Hey, you can yodel? Now, if you went along with me on that one, and uh, you followed that, you know that you said, a little old lady who? And it sounds like you're yodeling, right? And so that's the joke, is it's a pun. You said, a little old lady who, which is what you're supposed to say in a knock-knock joke. But then when I twist it and say, you can yodel, your mind grabs onto the fact that what you said could be misconstrued to sound like yodeling, but it does it so quick that it can be humorous. Now I know, you probably didn't laugh at that one. It's not that amazing of a joke, but that's how knock-knock jokes work. But I wanted to show you this for a reason, because a knock-knock joke is the perfect example of a hook, a setup, and a punchline. Right? The hook is asking someone knock knock because there's sort of the social construct where most people don't get out of childhood without knowing how to do how a knock knock joke works. You know what you're supposed to say, right? Um, and so when you go, when someone says knock knock, our impulse is to jump into that. Who's there, right? Asking someone a question hooks them because they have to respond. And then we have the setup, a little old lady, a little old lady who, and then the punchline is, hey, you can yodel, which is not the direction you thought it was going to go. And that's what makes it a, a, a joke is it's the surprise element. Now, puns are some of the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to uh, this setup of a joke, um, but it works because of the, the dual meaning. Now, here's a little bit better example of it. Here, this one comes from a comedian who is a legit comedian. He's my favorite, Mitch Hedberg. And this is my favorite joke of his of all time. I like an escalator, man, because an escalator can never break. It can only become stairs. <laughs> all right. There would, there would never be a escalator temporarily out of order sign. Only an escalator temporarily stares. 
Sorry for the convenience. <laughs> okay, so did you, did you hear what he did there? Did you see how that worked, right? He's like, I like escalators because an escalator can't break down. And you're like, wait, I've seen escalators that break down. And then the punchline, they can only temporarily become stairs. And you're like, oh yeah, actually, uh, it's still, when an escalator is broken, it still works. You can walk up on like stairs. But your mind does that all in a, in a split instance. And that's what makes it funny is that, that you grab onto it that quickly and you get, oh, there's another meaning to this. Um, and then he follows it up with, this, with the second part of it, which is this joke about you'll never see an out of order sign on an escalator, just a sign that says escalator temporarily stares. Sorry for the convenience. And I love this joke because it's so subtle. But we've all seen out of order signs that say, you know, this is out of order. Sorry for the inconvenience. So when he says sorry for the convenience, you realize actually that is really convenient about, about escalators that if they break down, they just become stairs. And it's just ridiculous. But it is so funny. And I've heard Mitch Hedberg tell this joke in a number of scenarios, and he almost always uses the exact same verbiage. And, and, and the punchline, it, it lands the same way every time. It really gets the audience going. It's one of my favorites. Now, there is a key difference in a lot of what I'm sharing here between how, how jokes work in a book versus a movie um, and in real life. Because the reason that a movie can have a lot easier time making someone laugh than just reading off the pages is that you have characters. Not that you don't have characters in books, but what I mean is you have actual, actual physical human beings in front of the camera doing a performance. And there, there's a physicality to humor a lot of times that, that can make something very funny, right? Just the way that somebody says a line can make it funnier than if someone had said it different, right? So you get these right actors into the role and when they're giving a line, it can just be super hilarious. And that is an advantage that movies have over books, whereas books, all you have is the word on the page and how you choose to read it in your mind will determine whether or not it's funny. And so there's a lot more control in the reader's mind, uh, a lot more control over whether or not something's funny from readers of a book versus in a movie when we see someone doing the performance that can make things a lot funnier. But movies and TV shows, they've got a few other tricks up their sleeve that just makes comedy uh, really, really work. Uh, one of the things they have is a live studio audience. If you've noticed, any of the late night show hosts like Jimmy Kimmel, Conan O'Brien, or you know J the old ones, Jay Leno, David Letterman, they all have a live studio audience. And this is because they're trying to be funny and having the audience react really helps a person perform, right? When, when you're getting that feedback that you're being funny, it's actually like, it's a ton of motivation to keep being funny. For example, that uh, story that I shared at the beginning of this about my most embarrassing moment, I've shared that story from stage and got really good laughs from the audience. And when you know the audience is laughing, you kind of like go with it and, and your energy perks up. And for some reason, you're able to continue being funny. Whereas as I, I was just telling that story here to the camera and I don't have any audience feedback, it's tough to, it's tough to play off that energy and know how it works. And that's why they have live studio audiences. Um, another advantage that sitcoms use is a laugh track. And we might all think that a laugh track is absolutely ridiculous now. It's like, come on, like you're going to have to cue me when to laugh. But I got news for you. It works. Uh, having something be funny 
is contagious. When we hear a lot of other people laughing, it makes us laugh. It also helps us to know when a joke has been said in case we miss something. So a laugh track can be kind of cheesy, but uh, it, it really does work. And so those are just some of the advantages that like a movie or a TV show have over a book in terms of being funny. But that doesn't mean you can't do it. And you do that by achieving amazing voice. And I already mentioned him from The Martian, Andy Weir. Uh, I think he's just fabulous at being funny. He tells these sci-fi stories that have a lot of stakes and a lot of things go wrong and there's actually a lot of tension in them. But his main character um, in The Martian as well as in Project Hail Mary, which I'm in the middle of and we're gonna talk about it here in a second, they, they just, they have such a good level of wit that the things that they say and the things that they share can just be so funny. And when it's read in their voice, uh, it actually, I, I can't tell you how many times I laughed while reading The Martian. And I just wanted to share a few of those snippets. Um, one of them is when they finally get a camera going on Mars and uh, Mark Watney gets up and they ask him for a picture that they can share with the world because everybody knows he's stuck on Mars. And for the picture, he does the fawns, right? <laughs> and what actually happens is then that goes back to uh, headquarters, NASA, right? Control Center, whatever it's called. And they're all upset. One of the, the PR ladies for NASA, um, she's all upset. She's like, ask for a picture and I get the fawns. And you'll notice that that's there for a reason too, because a lot of times what can make something funny is seeing how somebody reacts to it in a negative way. In fact, when you have a slapstick character, you wanna surround them with serious people because it makes their jokes stand out. If you notice, a lot of times, like for some reason, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air just, just leapt into my head. I mean, Will Smith is funny in that all the time, but whenever he's funny, I can remember the look on his cousin's face, on his uncle's face, um, whenever he does something silly and they just like deadpan him. And that actually makes the joke funnier. And you notice Andy Weir did this in a book, right? By having one character to react to the thing that Mark Watney did. Um, another passage that I have to share that just makes me laugh so hard. And I wish I had a laugh track here. Maybe I'll add it in post. In fact, I probably will and see if I can get a better laugh out of you. Um, he says the following. I started the day with some nothing tea, nothing. Okay, so a, a little uh, understanding here. He's running out of food. And so he's shared throughout the story all the crazy things he's done, um, how he's eating like ketchup straight towards the end of it. Anyway, so you know that he's running out of food at this point. It's towards the end. So it says log entry, soul 501. I started the day with some nothing tea. Nothing tea is easy to make. First, get some hot water, then add nothing. When I read that, it tickled my funny bone so much. Like I remember stopping and, and just like laughing because I, I didn't expect him to say that. But then of course he should have said that because he's just told you he's making nothing tea. And I would have assumed that nothing tea was just nothing, but no, he's like, get some hot water and add nothing. Um, I'll tell you another thing that's funny about this whole uh, episode that I'm doing right now. Explaining jokes also makes them less funny because it's the subtlety that the subtlety that tickles your funny bone. And the more that I explain them, the, the less funny they become. But as a creator, as a writer, you should be breaking these things down and you should be asking yourself, okay, why was that funny? Like, why does that tickle your funny bone? Oh, okay, it's the subtlety. It's that, that twist at the end that you didn't see coming, but then totally makes sense. Um, I'm going to share one more, but before I share this one, <laughs> I have to say a few things. Um, 
because comedy is trying to surprise, it's surprising, trying to delight, um, it's trying to often shock or come out of left field, it is prone to being condescending, it's prone to immaturity, it's prone to uh, innuendo. Um, and by the way, an innuendo is just a, a pervert's version of a pun, right? Like an innuendo is just a dad joke that is a little bit perverse. There, there's no difference between them. <laughs> Um, but, but that's why the, the comedy leans that direction is because it's always trying to surprise you and make you think about something in a little bit different of a way, right? The, the whole, that's what she said, um, because it's taking a statement out of context and putting it in a new context, but you, the statement didn't change, right? You're just imagining the same statement in a new context. And that's what makes it funny. So the reason I shared that is because this next one is, it leans a little bit more towards the loot a little bit. <laughs> Oh, it makes me laugh so hard. So again, Mark Watney is on Mars and he is, he's just gotten in contact where he can actually type messages home to earth and they can respond. So he's finally getting some humor interaction after they thought he was dead, after he survived this crazy, all these crazy things and he's getting some human interaction. And he's also on Mars by himself. So there's not a lot of, uh, he's, he's the sole authority on Mars. Nobody can tell him what or what not to do which is an interesting dynamic. So uh, I'll just share the passage. So he's typing back and forth with NASA. And, and so you understand uh, everything that happens at NASA because NASA is a government entity um, and they spend taxpayer dollars for whatever reason, I don't know. Um, they, uh, everything's public, right? Anytime NASA takes a picture, they have to make it available to the public. Anytime NASA does something new, they have to make it available to, to the public. When they have an important report, they make it available to the public. Um, I don't know a ton about it. I just know that it comes up in this book a number of times where they have to let the public know as soon as they know something. Anyway, Mark Watney is talking about the crops. The potatoes are doing good. Thanksgiving is coming, blah, blah, blah. Tell the crew I'm alive. Um, and, and then IPL, which is NASA, or sorry, JPL says, we'll get botanists in to ask detailed questions and double check your work. Your life is at stake, so we want to be sure. Sol 900 is great news. It'll give us a lot more time to get the supply mission together. Also, please watch your language. Everything you type is being broadcast live all over the world. And what does Mark Watney say? <laughs> he puts this on the screen. He does a parentheses and then a period and then a Y and then a, per then a period and then a parentheses. If you're listening to this podcast, go ahead and type that out. Um, pull out your phone um, if you're watching this um, on YouTube, because this, this recording is going to both. Um, you can see what this makes, and then I'll read the punchline. So it's a parenthesis, space, period, space, the capital letter Y, and then a period, space, and then a close parenthesis. And Mark Notney, so <laughs> again, let's run through this again. Mark, please watch your language. Everything you type is being broadcast live all over the world. And what does Watney respond? He says, look, a pair of boobs. And then he types the parentheses, the period, <laughs> the why. Yeah, as you can see that it, it's, it's fourth grade humor, right? Where, where you can make it look like boobs just using, oh, yeah. Super funny moment, but like I said, comedy often leans that direction because it's trying to surprise you. And that moment's super funny because he's doing something very public. The whole world is paying attention. And what does he do? He's being a four-year-old, he's being a child. But the thing that I love about The Martian 
is that Mark Watney, it's so from Mark Watney's character, the thing that enables him to survive is his ability to look at things in a funny way. Now, um, Andy Weir also wrote Project Hail Mary. I'm, I'm partway through it. It has made me laugh in different ways from The Martian, but it's made me laugh a number of times. And again, it comes from this character saying things that we don't expect, saying things that are rather witty. Uh, I highly recommend it. Um, the last joke that I want to share uh, comes from Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell um, by Susanna Clark. It's such a good book. And again, this isn't a comedy book, but it's peppered with some really, really good humor. And there's a magician and he has convinced the king, who's a little bit out of his mind, to go with him and they escape and they get out of the palace and he's like asking the king some questions. And um, he's not supposed to be with the king. And the king has these, these, uh, these, what do you call them? Nurses that are taking care of him that when they notice he's gone, they come running and they're chasing, they're chasing Jonathan Strange and the king. So that's a little bit of setup. Um, and one of those nurses uh, that is taking, supposed to be taking care of the king is Dr. Robert. And it's a big deal because he's the king. So Dr. Robert is chasing after Jonathan Strange. And Jonathan tries to like say something and he like throws something back at them. And Dr. Robert, it misses him. And so it says, Dr. Robert laughed in a sarcastic manner. But the effect of cold scientific disdain was rather spoiled when his boots suddenly carried him off with such force that he banged his nose against a tree. I, <laughs> I stopped laughing. I, I, I stopped reading and just started laughing at this point because it's such a serious moment. These guys are about to catch Jonathan Strange, but he's a magician. He casts a spell on their boots. And right as this guy is like, ha ha, we got you. And he's like, he's like being vicious right? But his ability to be vicious is totally ruined when his boots just take him off the path and he goes walking another direction. And the image of that in my mind was just so ticklish. It just made me laugh. So, so good. Um, so you can see, so you can see how it works. It's, it's a surprise where something happens you don't expect and that you realize, uh, that there's, there's a silly component to it, right? You, you have a hook, a setup, and then the surprise that happens that at a glance is surprising, but that on second thought, you're like, oh, that, that totally makes sense. And it, and it makes you smile. And that's how, that's how comedy works. Now, broad strokes, the best way to make comedy really work in your story is to make sure that it comes from character. Uh, you'll have a character that has a little bit of a different take on life. And so they say things that other people wouldn't say. They do things that other people wouldn't do. And that's where a lot of the comedy comes from. I, I can't help but think of Parks and Rec, which is by far my favorite comedy series of all time. The writers were so, so good, but I also know a lot of it came from the actors as well. There's a lot of impromptu stuff on Parks and Rec. And it all comes from characters. You have these characters that don't interact with the world the way that normal people do. And that's the key, is to make your characters unique and have a different perspective on life. And then the comedy just sort of just comes out of them as they say, often it's a character saying things that um, everyone else is thinking, but nobody's willing to say. And then a character says it and it, and it becomes funny, right? Uh, this scene, um, there's a scene in Parks and Rec that I just love where we cut out to Andy Dwyer and we know that he's kind of this failed to launch kind of a guy. And he's got this job at the shoeshine stand and he's like over the moon, like it's the best job he's ever had. And he just loves being in, involved. Anyway, and we cut to him and he's at the shoeshine stand and he's connected probably 20 red straws, like plastic straws, and he's made a super straw. 
But the funny thing is, when we cut to him, all he is doing is he's got it in his mouth and he's drinking out of it with a cup on the ground and he's just just pulling on it and and he looks so proud of himself and that is probably one of the funniest moments in the entire series for me and it was a pretty significant moment which I wanted to share um, a little bit about that here at the end the reason that comedy is important to me um, but I just laughed so, so hard and I, it, it endeared me to Andy. He became my fa- favorite character on the show because he was so funny and so carefree. And that's so much what I needed in my life at that point. Like I said, comedy is sugar. You, you, you add it to your narrative and I'm not saying I'm amazing at it. I'm just in awe of those who are, but you add it to the narrative and, and it can bring a character to life and it also can endear us to that character. And, and so like Andy, that moment was just so funny and he became my, my favorite character on the show. And what I wanted to share was I got into Parks and Rec at a time in my life um, where I was, I was incredibly stressed. I was at grad school and I was feeling like I was sucking at a lot of things and I was feeling very uh not left out but but I was different than most of the other grad students because um I was older when I went to grad school I was um late 20s most of my fellow students had gone straight from their undergrad into grad school and so they were like in their early 20s and I just felt like I couldn't relate to them I was married most of them weren't I had a kid most of them didn't and I was just at a very different stage in life. And not that that's a bad thing, that's a great thing, but it, it made it really hard for me to connect with people. And on top of that, already being sort of like this awkward, embarrassing guy, you remember the story I shared at the beginning? Um, while I've grown up a little, I'm still not always the best in social situations and letting my, my, my personality come out. So it was just, suffice it to say, I was very stressed at this time in my life. And when I got into Parks and Rec, it was, it was really important for me because I was struggling. And I remember looking forward to the weekend every week when Friday and Saturday could come and I would just stay up late binge watching Parks and Rec and it allowed me to unplug, but more importantly, it allowed me to laugh. And that was such a huge release for me. I, it, it sounds a little drastic to say uh, that Parks and Rec saved my life. I don't think it saved my life, but man, I was going through a miserable time and it was like, it was like sugar that helped me get through that that really difficult time. So if you are a comedy writer, just know that I'd, I'd like to say thank you because it's not easy. And a lot of times it doesn't get the attention and the awards and the, the um, praise that it deserves for writing comedy. Um, and then to those those actors and those people that put themselves out there and go through difficult uh, times being stand-up comedians to try and be funny. Thank you for trying to make the world a happier, brighter place because comedy, it is sugar uh, in our stories and in life. Sorry, I didn't mean to get all philosophical at the end, but we went there and just wanted to say thank you. And that is all my thoughts on comedy. 